and uh, we're picking it up in Matthew 27:55, and we've looked at uh, different responses from different people, and some of them are very bad, and then others are good. Uh, while Jesus was dying on the cross, we know a lot of people were uh, abusing him physically, and then also by the things that they said, by the Jews and the Romans. And uh, we saw last week that there were actually Roman soldiers who had a positive response to Jesus. They recognized who he was, the Son of God. And these are the very ones that had crucified him and uh, done other things to him that day. That's quite remarkable, since they never knew who he was before this crucifixion. They didn't know much about him at all. And a lot of miracles that were happening. You know, we, we looked at that last week and even the week before. And The crowd, as a whole, missed the display of God's glory. They saw a little bit of His wrath, but they didn't even really gather what that was all about as He brought darkness on the face of the earth. But there was that great confession that was made. Truly, this was the Son of God. That was nice to see, wasn't it? A breath of fresh air. It was positive. And we're going to continue uh, with that, with positive responses as we look at it this week. And these are going to be coming from ones who were already believers before this happened. Whereas the Roman soldiers didn't believe before, and then in one instant they did. And then we know the thief on the cross. Same thing happened there. And then he became a believer. So different ways, different things, different uh, people... Uh, are involved in this incident. We uh, look at verse 55. It's dealing with the loyal women at the cross, 55 and 56. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. So, we get a little idea of who some of these were. Uh, if you remember um, how the gospel story goes, at the cross, we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there, and John was there, and some of the other uh, people, women. In John 19.25, says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So they had been there earlier, and Mary had been with them. Now we see them where they're actually afar off viewing what is going on. So it's easy to assume that I believe that there was a lot of suffering going on by Christ. We know that. And because of that, maybe they just couldn't handle everything that was going on with Jesus. And they just started backing off and looked from a distance. And it wasn't that they were afraid of the Roman soldiers. I think they're very courageous just being around here. When you think of the disciples, where are they? They're nowhere to be seen except John was there. And then later on, we don't know where he went. But this could have been very dangerous for them when you think about it. The Roman soldiers and and then, of course, the uh Jewish religious leaders, think of the spot that they put themselves in by being identified with Christ. They had a lot of grief in their hearts. Um, at the same time, they are going to stay in that area, though, and observe 
I believe what you see here is a true love for their Savior. He was a beautiful one to them. Sing that song, Beautiful One. That's what He was to them. They were very loyal. And you know, you see um, women a, a lot of times in, in the church who are very loyal to Christ and, and the church. And godly women seem to have that kind of pattern where they stay loyal to it, where you know times can, can be very hard or there could be a danger or there could be all sorts of instances that could be for that, uh, those particular ladies. I think that's an attribute that godly women can have because if you look at the disciples, these godly men are gone. And the women are there. And I look at the church today and guess what the biggest number of people are. It's the women. They far outnumber the men in, the, in all churches today. That is incredible. And they stayed loyal to Christ. And, and my question is, is where are the men? My question is still that. Is where are the men? I'm glad the men are here you know, that we have. Thankful for that. But it uh, be nice to see more godly men. But I'm glad to see godly women because they keep the church going today. What would happen? Boy. So the Lord has proven over and over again that women have quite a gift to the church. They're just as important as men are. They just have different roles to play. Um, so anyway, uh, matter of fact, I have to think of Rocky. Where's Rocky at? You go, what, what's Rocky? Who's Rocky? What is that? What do you mean? Take a guess. Peter. Peter is means rock, right? Rocky's gone. You know, this one who's always, you know, he's standing up and, you know, asking questions to Jesus and he always has the answer to things too. And Rocky is gone. A whole big number of the disciples, the men are gone. But you have other women disciples. They're not part of the twelve apostles. But it says here in verse 55, look at this. And many women. We're just not talking about the Marys in here that are listed we're talking about many women. And I have to think, this could mean eight, it could mean ten, it could mean twelve, even more. We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says many. And if you look through all the other gospel accounts, it says that. Many women. They're following. And uh, we know they're from Galilee, it says here. They followed Jesus from Galilee. They came all the way from there. And they were in Jerusalem at this time. And then it says that they, were, they had been ministering to him. Uh, diakonia, diakonos is uh, the word here. And you'd never guess what that means. It means servants or deacons. And I guess in a sense you could call these the first deaconesses of the church in a biblical format. What deacons do are uh, they, they serve. A lot of people think, well, they, they're the ones who uh, make the decisions in the church. Well, no, those are elders. There are deacons who serve. They serve the body of Christ. And later on, you will see the word deaconesses come up in the New Testament. I'm not liberal, and you guys know that. But I know in some churches they call deacons who are really elders, and so therefore they have a trouble with using the word deaconesses, but it's scriptural. They're, they're simply servants. They do whatever the Lord lays on their heart to serve people in the church and, and such. So uh, with, with that being said, nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, I think John MacArthur has, 
use that term very often. I think they have deaconesses in their church, but it's, it's in the right way because they have elders there, multiple elders who lead the church, who make the decisions for the church. Anyway, these women are eyewitnesses of the death. They are actually seeing this happen. They're hearing everything. Uh, and so God is going to reward some of these women. As a matter of fact, He's going to reward one of them to be the very first one to see Him after He resurrects. And it's a woman. It's not, it's not Peter. It's not James and John or Andrew or any of those guys. But it's that Mary Magdalene. Right? That's an incredible thought when you think about it. Um, I think that the disciples still have a hard time of, of what serving is about. Jesus had taught them in the lesson that night before that um, as he washed their feet, they were to see the humility involved in serving. And they had a hard time learning that, and they'd still been arguing about who the greatest was. So as far as I think the early church is concerned, this um, idea of these women doing that, they mentioned it quite often. It was quite in the story of, of what happened at that time. They held a place of uh, great respect amongst the early church. Uh, they, they held them in, in, a, in affection, is what they did, because uh, they were there. And they were bold in being around. I think the apostles had to mention these women as they went and preached the gospel. Now, we don't necessarily see that in the Scripture. It's preaching Jesus Christ. But I'm sure that they said as He was dying... Guess who was around there? Guess who stayed? They had to tell that on themselves, didn't they? The courage that they had. Now, they're particularly named in this section here in Matthew 27. It doesn't give them all. It just gives us three names, among whom were Mary Magdalene. She was from Magdala. That was pretty easy. Mary Magdalene. You think, well, that was her last name. But that was the town she was from because she evidently didn't have a husband to identify with. Or, and there's no, like, a father mentioned. So it's just Mary Magdalene. She's of that town. That town was a little bitty town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, not too far from Capernaum. What's the big deal about Capernaum? Well, that's where Jesus made his headquarters in his three-year ministry. And, of course, Peter was there, and, of course, they did the, some of their fishing there. But she was close in that area, and whenever she joined them as being... Uh, a follower, she um, had quite a role as uh, she ministered to Christ. She uh, is identified as that lady. And then there is another one mentioned, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Or Joseph. Uh, he was known, now this is uh, James, but not one of the James that we find in the early list of the apostles. Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. There was another James in there, and sometimes he was called James the Less. Now, how would you like to have that name, James the Less? Well, he was known as James the Less because the other one was more known. You know, the Sons of Thunder, and uh, the first uh, four apostles that are mentioned, you know, Peter, and of course he had a brother, Andrew, and then the two uh, brothers, James and John, are always mentioned in that first set. Uh, John, 1925, uh, she uh, is identified as the wife of Clopas. 
And here it's it is a matter of um, the mother of James and Joseph or Joseph. Then there's the mother of Zebedee's sons. Mark calls her Salome or Salome. I've never I've heard I've never really known how to pronounce that because I've heard it pronounced so many different ways. And you guys probably wonder what is that? How do you pronounce that? Matthew calls her Zebedee's wife. Really, the mother of Zebedee's sons. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, must have not been with them at this time from afar off. Maybe she still was up there close, or maybe she had been taken home with by John. I tend to think that's where uh, they went. John was supposed to take care of her. Jesus had said that. So that's probably what has happened there. She is not with that group at that point in time. Uh, but she had been at the cross. We saw that in, in our John 19. Uh, there's there's passages to show where they give them different names, but it's the same people. That's that's how they identify them with them. Of course, with all these Marys running around, you have these two Marys, and then you have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Almost gets confusing, doesn't it? These three women represent really three kinds of different kinds of women. So what do you mean? Well, you have one who is not identified with a husband. So she could be single or unmarried. Anybody here identify with that? Absolutely. Then you have another one who is identified as a mother. And can you can you guys identify with that? I'm sure you can. And then there's another kind of, of just being a faithful wife. Um, Zebedee's sons. Mother of Zebedee's sons. So she's the um, faithful wife to Zebedee. So there they are, standing from afar off now, grieving, and we run into um, another section now. And it's dealing with the burial. And this burial is so often just passed over. You don't really hear too many messages about the burial. You don't hear too many or read too many books about the burial of Christ. You ever thought about that? Usually you think of his death and boom, you hit burial and go right on to resurrection, Right? And that's how I probably always approached it. But this burial, and this is as far as we're going to go today. We're not going to go into the resurrection. But this burial is something to really bring attention to. Um, we know that in 1 Corinthians 15, for he died, you know, according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, and then he was buried and then rose again on the third day, Right? Well, we don't want to dismiss that. He's buried. Okay. He's buried. But the details that come in on this burial are very amazing. This is by the very sovereign hand of God. The providence of God is involved in here on how this burial happened. It didn't just happen. It happened by the very ordaining of God's plan to be worked out to very detailed manner and in a way that proves again that the Bible that we read is inspired by God and that it's inerrant. And when prophecy is fulfilled one after another, after another, after another, after another, all through his death and burial and his resurrection, you see these Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled. It is incredible. 
So we see the sovereignty of God coming into big play here, as, as it has been all the way through. But this is uh, much more than an ordinary event, this, this burial. God is controlling us. There's no explanation by humans by all this that's this happening. This, this is the Son of God. So we look at verse 57 now. This is part two. In your outline, it says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb. There's a lot going on here. We're just not going to dismiss this as the burial. There's two key prophecies that are fulfilled out of this. And remember, we've been seeing these all along. And, and looking back at the Psalms and looking at Isaiah 53 and other places. One of the prophecies we look at today is in Isaiah 53, verse 9. Isaiah wrote when? Something like 700 years before Christ. And I don't think anybody really knew what this meant until it actually had happened. Maybe later. 53.9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. We're talking about the grave, and we're talking about the burial, and it's with the rich at his death. With the rich at his death. Normally, what happens is when one would die on the cross, the Romans would take them down, throw them in an open grave, and let the animals and the birds have their joy. Feast time. That's, that's pretty bad. Or they would throw them in the city dump where it would be burning and just let that burn. That's the kind of thing that would usually happen. And that's why Isaiah mentioned that. You know, we were talking about, you know, he died with those wicked, but that, you know, they had a place, they were going to bury him, but no, no, no. God has a plan in mind. And he's got a person in mind that's going to come there, some person that we uh, would not have known. Probably if we had been following around with Jesus all that time, some interesting individual comes up into the story. The, the second one is in Matthew 12:40, where you have a foretelling of Jesus dealing with uh, Jonah. And being in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. So we have those two prophecies that definitely come in to our thinking here as this goes on. This, this had been foretold by Isaiah, but Jesus also mentioned it. So you have an Old Testament prophet, then you have Jesus the prophet mentioning this big statement here. Now, the circumstances of the burial here we look at the time. Now, there's two reasons for Jesus to die a few hours before the day ended. The day ends at 6 o'clock, according to the Jews. That's when the next day starts. That's the Sabbath. There's two reasons. 
Number one is that the Sabbath, we know, starts at 6 o'clock. And it was necessary, as far as the Jews are concerned, that the body be taken down from the cross and then prepared and that the Sabbath is the next day. They didn't want to profane the Sabbath. So it's the day before the Sabbath when he dies. Now take note of that. There had to be enough time to do all this. There are only three hours left until the Sabbath starts. John mentions that. He mentions it's a high Sabbath. And we'll explain that in a moment. What's the high Sabbath? But the Sabbath day is coming up in three hours. Something's going to have to happen very quick. Because there are time periods that Jesus has already mentioned. He's talking about on the third day he'll rise again. Now, that's one reason. The second reason, he has to be buried on Friday in order for three days to be counted, right? More or less mention that. If he is put in before 6 o'clock, then he is buried on what we, we know as Friday. The preparation day, as John will mention. A preparation day before the Sabbath. You get all your food ready, get everything, because you don't do anything on Saturday. You don't work on Saturday. So you prepare on that day. John mentioned that. We'll probably remember that in a little bit. Okay, this idea of the, the Sabbath. Uh, you go back to Exodus 20, verse 8, and, uh, and the Ten Commandments is, says that the Sabbath is to be kept holy. It's not to be profaned. You remember uh, out in the wilderness, and they were fed the manna. They would gather it up every morning, and it would last throughout the day, and that was enough. The next day, then they would get enough manna, whatever they needed for that day. When it came to Friday, they would do it two times. Or they'd pick enough for two days, is what it amounted to. They wouldn't work on the Sabbath. So they, did, they were not to profane that. So what, what is happening here is that they're going to prepare for that particular day, and they're going to bury him on this Friday before it happens. So it has to happen within three hours. It, it cannot happen later after 6 o'clock. Now, John 19.31 says his bones were not broken so, you know, because he was already dead. They didn't have to break his bones. They have to take those bodies off the crosses. The Jews can't have them hanging up there on, um, on that uh, next day. It was supposed to be taken down before there was sundown. And to make it even more, more multiplied, never to be hanging there on the Sabbath. But it wasn't supposed to be hanging there the next day. We'll turn to Deuteronomy 21-23. Look at the law here for a moment. Deuteronomy 21-23. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. The hanging on the tree. Crucifixion. That's what he's talking about. If anybody does that, make sure you get them off of that cross. Off of that tree. Really key. So, this particular day is very potent. High Sabbath is during the Passover feast. It's going to be a Sabbath, but this time it's a high Sabbath. It's a Sabbath that occurs during the Passover. A high Sabbath. Before the Sabbath, or it's Friday. After 6 o'clock, it would be considered Sabbath. Okay, we got that, right? The um, holy day 
not to be defiled, not at this time. So somebody's going to ask, John 12:40. What does this mean then? Uh, I said John. I'm not so sure why I said that one. It's actually uh, Matthew, same book you're in. Just want to give you a little bit of exercise with your fingers. Okay, they've been asking for a sign. You know, Jesus, okay, if you're really the one, give us a sign. Well, he's been giving them signs all over the place. My goodness, his preaching and his teaching and his, uh, his miracles. And then he says in verse 40, For as Jonah was three days, three nights, in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's comparing back to Jonah way back in that Old Testament time period, and we know that Jonah was in that fish. All that time. Now, we have to ask, well, didn't he have to be there three days and three nights? Three full days, three full nights. Uh, three 24-hour periods. Didn't he have to be that? No. Doesn't. That would mean you'd have to back up for him being crucified and buried on Thursday. And so therefore, you have Thursday. You have Friday. You have Saturday, Sabbath. When did he resurrect? Sunday. How many days is that? That would mean he would be raising up on the fourth day. Okay? How can we, how can we put this together? This is rather confusing. And it has been throughout the church. But I think if we look at Scripture and realize what's being stated and then really look at how did, how did the Jewish people look at it, how did Jesus look at it? I want to look at that in a moment. And then, how did, how did the, the other Jewish people, as far as the Talmud is concerned, how, how do they view days and nights and such? So, we don't want a fourth day resurrection, because we're going to have a problem with that. So, what do we do? Well, everything in the text says the third day. Why did Jesus say this three days and three nights? Well, I don't see 24-hour periods here. It was a Jewish colloquialism, and this is what they always believe for expressing any part of the day. And I know most of us probably heard this many times, but that was really how they looked at a day. If, if I were to go to Kansas City, and there is a pastor's conference going on, and it's going to be Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Hey, I'm going to go to Kansas City for three days, but I don't get there until 6 o'clock at night, because the speaker starts at 6.30. Okay, I still count that as a day. I'm looking at from an American colloquialism here too, don't they? Then there's all day sat, or, uh, Friday, and then the conference ends on Saturday, and they have a couple of hours there, and then I pack up and leave. Okay, um, Thursday, I had part of Thursday, all day Friday, and a little bit of Saturday, and I'm gone. I wasn't there three full days, but I was there three days. There's only one day that I was really there fully, but there is the idea of being in a place for three days. Uh, on the third day, I, I left, right? Okay, let's look at Luke 24, 21. And we're going to look what Jesus says. Again, he said three days and three nights. But when you would say three days and three nights, it's just saying any part of that day. It's just, you know, just saying here, here's a day. Um, Luke twenty four twenty one. 
and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happen. Okay, what's happening here? You have Christ with the Emmaus disciples. And he has met them. They don't know who he is. He explains the Old Testament passages and how they've been fulfilled. Uh, that's in this meeting with them as he opens them up later. But here he says, hey, uh, yeah, this Jesus, we, we love him so much. We were followers of him and everything. And behold, today is the third day since all that happened. This is the third day since he was arrest, or crucified, right? And, and buried. This is the third day. Uh, their understanding here is not three 24-hour days, but it was going to be on the third day. That's when it was that time. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, look at this, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and then be raised the third day. Not on the fourth day, but the third day. Keep going. Go to chapter 17, verse 23. And they will kill him, and the third day, this is Jesus speaking, he will be raised up. Third day. Sounds like a music group, doesn't it? Third day. We do a lot of this. The third day should be raised. Christ expected a third day resurrection. Not at the end of three full 24-hour days. That would put it on the fourth day. So what we have to conclude that Jesus was saying three portions of those 24-hour periods. That's how the Jews always took it anyway, when you would have uh, days counted. They, they always understood that. Well, then it seems like we have another problem. When we look at Matthew twenty-seven sixty-three. This is just a few verses after where we're at today, right? Saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, speaking of Jesus, after three days I will rise. And you say, oh, there it is right there. After three days... I will rise. So it must be a fourth day. Oh, no, we've got a conflict. Because Jesus has been saying all along, on the third day, on the third day, on the third day. And now they say, hey, he said this, that after the third day, I'll rise again. After. Well, verse 64 will explain this. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Put, secure that thing until the third day. Because on the third day, he says he's going to rise again, right? So after, you can say, okay, what about that after three days? 
Well, after three days was any part of the third day had started. As soon as the third day had started, that's after the third day. The third day is going on. It doesn't mean another day or we have all sorts of conflict. Well, how did the Talmud look at this? This is Jewish writing. This is how they counted days. They said a day and a night makes one ona day. One ona, a day and a night. Okay. And any part of that is one ona, an hour, a minute, a couple hours, five hours. That's a day. That's, a, that's an ona. So that's the idea of what's happening here. I know it, it looks very uh, hard, but we're going to have conflict if we take it any other way. He can't raise on the fourth day, so it has to be the third day. And their Sabbath did start at 6 o'clock, so that was the Saturday. It was Friday when he was uh, uh, buried. So, what do we have here? I think it's fascinating. This, this whole story is about the hypocrisy of the Jews. They want to get his body taken down off the cross because the Sabbath is so important to them. And so they follow the law down to the very detail of getting him off of there. That's very important to them because the Sabbath is going to happen. And they're the very ones who killed him, the very Lord of the Sabbath. What do we have? Hypocrisy. Little did they know they were cooperating with Jesus. God's plan. They were cooperating all along, even this whole death, burial, the resurrection, you know, with the stone and everything, I mean, everything here. They are playing right into God's hands because God is orchestrating this. He planned it out, told us about it long before it ever happened, hundreds of years before it happened, and then He makes sure it happens. What's the chance for all of these things to happen just blindly? Somebody dies like this and this happens. Uh, one in infinite. I mean, there is. I mean, the mathematical pop, or uh, um, I guess you can say the the whole idea of it is, is impossible. There's no possibility here of that happening uh, humanly. Okay, so what they have to do, they say, okay, we'll take them down, but they're still alive. Well, two of them are still alive. Jesus has already died. Well, that's an amazing thing. But that was made to happen. And remember, he was in control of his death. Um, what what happened is in John nineteen thirty four, you get the soldiers saying, "Okay, what we do is take the spear and ram it up through their side." And that's what they're going to do with Jesus because he looks dead. They just want to make sure. In verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side. Verse 33 said he was already dead. With a spear and immediately blood and water came out. So the blood, the water come out of there. If you look in Psalm 34, verse 20, here's another detail that was prophesied. Psalm 34, 20. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. You say, what does that have to do with this? Well, you remember the, the hammer that they have to use, the mallet 
to break their bones so they wouldn't be able to breathe. You say, what? How does that make any sense? Well, if you're on the cross, you pull up on the cross, get your breath, and you go back down. And then to get that air again, you have to go back up. Painful thing. This can go for hours and hours and hours. Well, Jesus had already stopped. These guys are still doing it. So to keep them from keep going up the cross, they break their legs, now they're down there, and then they suffocate. That's how they die. That was very painful to do that. What a way to go. But it was quick. At least they didn't have to continue on that way. They had to get these bodies off of there. And that's, that's the idea of the Jews doing that. That's why you know permission is, is asked and, and uh, they make this all a legal thing here. Uh, but once more, prophecy is fulfilled. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Another prophecy is mentioned. 12.10 And I will pour on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. This is one who has been pierced. This is Jesus Christ. This is at His second coming. And they will look upon the piercing that has been made. That piercing by the spear. Look in John 19.37 And, again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John takes that right out of where? Zechariah 12. Uh, By the way, back up to verse 36, we'll read what John says here. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And that to break his bones, he was already dead. You can see why he had to die before they did. John 20, verse 27. This is where you have Thomas... Thomas has been having a problem about Jesus being resurrected and then that uh, next time they had gotten together finally says in 27 he said to Thomas reach your finger here and look at my hands reach your hand here and put it into my side that's the side that was pierced put his hand in there and that proved it right Jesus' wound was so deep that he told Thomas to put his hand and put it in there, into the side. There's another thing about that. Um, we know about the the fluid that came out. You have water and blood there. There's another prophecy that could be fulfilled. Don't want to read into it. It's not explicit like the other ones, but it could very well be that. In Psalm 69:20. Reproach has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Many, and then they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. This has to do with the time of the ultimate reality of this. As as David is writing this, um, he's really showing the Messiah. And that very first phrase, reproach has broken my heart. Jesus actually probably could have had a broken heart because um, all of the anxiety that had been happening with him, the emotional strain. And they say a human heart can actually burst 
you guys have probably heard this story before, but it, it is an amazing thing. It could actually break open because of all the strain that's been on him. And then what it does is it causes the blood to spill into the pericardium, which there is fluid surrounding the heart. It mixes together and it comes out of that deep piercing of the spear wound there. So there was another prophecy fulfilled in your Psalm 69, 20 possibly there. But definitely that's what happened historically. Now, what the Romans would do is throw this body into the open grave and then come along the animals and the birds and whatever else. Uh, or you go into the burning garbage dump. Jesus' body was um, to be buried. Only has a short amount of time to get this done. God has a sovereign plan to make sure that He is buried with the rich and not with the wicked. He's mentioned that in Isaiah. The precise time is amazing. God moves the heart of this man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Just happens to happen, right? This is an accident. He, just, he starts feeling bad about all this. He says, hey, listen, I'll give him my grave. My team. Well, Jesus is going to be buried in this place. Joseph comes right up there at the specific time. If he had asked any earlier, his, he, Jesus hadn't died yet. And if he asks too late, he's not going to have enough time to get that body in there because they still have a lot of things to do. They have to prepare this body uh, and for this burial. So I think it's an incredible thing how this, this works. Uh, it says in Mark 15.43, something relating to this that might help us out. Let's see. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member. He's not just your average Joe, Joseph, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. This man, Joseph, what rights does he have to get the body? He's not related to Jesus. He's not a family member. He is not one of an authority to come there, even though he is part of the Sanhedrin. And yes, he is rich. He is a rich man. Just like Isaiah said. He was a righteous man. Look in Luke 23, 50-51 with the gospel writers coming together, you get a pretty good picture of who this man was. Now, behold, there was a man. By the way, did you catch that word behold? Now, check this out. Look at this. You're not going to believe this. That's, that's the idea that Luke is writing. There was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man, a righteous man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. In that, as far as what the council did, he didn't agree with them at all. He was from uh, um, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen. So um, Luke doesn't mention that. Um, 
what we just read in Mark about Pilate and such. But he, but he gets a body. I think it's an amazing thing that that happened. Do you see the sovereignty of God here? Do you see how he's working this all together? His plan is just coming together perfectly. There's nothing like this, is there? And people will say, well, I just don't believe the Bible. Oh, yeah. Really? Well, have you ever read the Bible? Some of it. It doubts itself. Have you ever read the whole Bible and studied the Bible for years? You might come to a different conclusion. When you see all these things come together like like this, I think it's just so amazing. Uh, He's from Arimathea, which means he he lived very close to Jerusalem. Arimathea, we don't know exactly for sure, but we think it was a little town just a few miles, very close to Jerusalem, north of there. It was from Judea. It says the land of the Jews there that we read in Luke. That means uh, that was considered to be the uh, Judea, which is in that area, right there in Jerusalem. Uh, and that uh, where the two tribes had lived, Judah and Benjamin. 19, John 19.38 After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he was secretly because he feared the Jews or the Jewish religious leaders, the council. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. He had been fearing the Jewish leaders because that would mean he would lose his job, he would lose lose his wealth, his security. Uh, who knows what would happen as far as his family is concerned. His whole social life, everything would have dropped had they known that he was a follower of Christ. So what does it say here? Being a disciple, but secretly. He didn't want to tell them yet He's waiting for the proper time and whenever they wanted to kill him and he knew that was getting around, he disagreed with them. I'm sure he has probably fallen into a disfavor, but it was, it was quite... It, when, when you see the word disciple, it means he was a learner. It means he was a follower. So he had learned from Jesus his teachings. He had heard his, heard his preaching. He had seen the miracles. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He was looking to the kingdom of God. He was a believer. He was convinced that Jesus was Lord even before He had resurrected. Now that's something. I don't even think He even knows what's going to happen with His resurrection. Now Jesus has mentioned that, but the disciples didn't get it, so I'm not so sure that He did. He's just doing what He's supposed to be doing. He's fulfilling His role. And that's what God has given all of us to do. We have a little role in this grand scheme of things. God has a great plan, a great story. I mean, this is a movie. What a tremendous story, but it's real. And He uses each of us in that story to play a part. And it's all a key part because every last part has been ordained to happen. And it will happen as this story here happens. So, we have all this cooperation. Even Pilate's playing a role in this. He's not a believer. 
The Jewish religious leaders are playing a role in all this. All of this. It's all happened. And Joseph, all he's going to do is just bury him. That's what he's supposed to do. That's more than that. He had a love for Jesus. There's no doubt about that. To do what he did. And he wanted Jesus' body to have dignity in this burial. What a thing that would have been if Jesus would have been thrown in to the garbage dump and burned. Or the birds and the animals would have ate him up. Can you imagine? That is horrendous to even think about, isn't it? But God made a way. He already had this figured out. I think this sovereign Lord is, is amazing as we look at that. I think it just, again, it proves the legitimacy of, of the Bible. Now, the tomb was close to Golgotha. With modern archaeology, we pretty well know where it was that he was buried. Matter of fact, we pretty well know where he's crucified. And most today have come to the conclusion that it was Gordon's Calvary where he died. We won't be dogmatic about this, but it's pretty well taken today by most of your scholars, archaeologists, that what you have here is a tomb that is completely adjacent to where Jesus had been crucified, Gordon's Calvary. wonder how far that is away. Let's see, it says here in, in Matthew that it looks like he's by himself. I think he's very courageous in what he's doing. Do you guys think he's pretty courageous in being identified with Jesus here and his body and taking it away to his tomb? This is going to get around, folks. I don't know what you think, but I think he lost his job. And maybe more than that. I bet he was right in on the, the very first part of the church. you know. But I've got a feeling he lost a lot because of his belief here. Um, he could actually carry this body from where he's crucified to the burial place because it's only a stone throw away. That, that's how close it is. You can go to, to the tomb today uh, in Jerusalem uh, where he was buried, put in the tomb, where he resurrected to, you can sit there and have a Lord's Supper as they're serving that to you as you're on a tour and then look over here and you can see Gordon's Calvary. And so it wasn't that far to take him there. And then, as, as you're in uh, probably the book of John maybe, you still there? John 19, verse 39. And at the end of 38 it says, So he came and took the body of Jesus, that is Joseph, now it says in the next verse, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, back in John 3, also came. Nicodemus is a, what? A Pharisee? Bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. A hundred pounds. So, this is remarkable. The, the kind of stuff that he's using here is stuff only for a king. You would not have this kind of stuff for uh, just an average person. Nicodemus 
is showing up. And people are going to identify who He is. He's not a secret disciple anymore either, is He? It's about time to stand up, folks. (laughs) Can we get that out of this message? Can we get out of standing up for Christ when we have an opportunity to show everybody who we are? I'm tired of us uh, being these lazy, wimp Christians who nobody would even know that we're Christians. They need to know who we are. There they are. They had been hiding out before. Quiet, but not now. Not anymore. Why would you do all this covering up of this these uh, this myrrh and aloes and everything? That had to cost a lot of money. I'm sure Nicodemus that day wound uh, uh, rounded up all this stuff. You just don't have a hundred pounds of aloes and myrrh uh, just at your house, just ready. He had to go shopping and pick this stuff up and get it quick. This is preparation day. They have to prepare for this burial here. You've got to get this done in a short amount of time. That's why this three hours was critical. They've got to get him in there quick. It's going to take time to get 100 pounds in there and pack this body and then wrap it up. That was to cover that whole stench of the decay that would happen. We know then on the third day that the women showed up and had uh, stuff with them too, but they didn't need it. <laughs> it's too late. Um, you have two disciples of Jesus just out in the open. They're being seen and they're caring for the body of Jesus. Same time, where are the apostles at? Oh. They're the ones who had been seen with Jesus for three years and they're nowhere to be seen. They're hiding out. And here you have these guys showing everybody. They had been so quiet. Isn't that incredible? Jesus moved it on their hearts to do what they did. I think it's John that's really interesting. He says, the one who came by night. Remember that? Oh, I told you about that in John 3. Uh, Nicodemus wasn't a believer at that time when Jesus showed him what it was about. But somewhere between that time and this time, he became a believer. And then in, in Matthew, just finishing this up. They'd taken the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Brand new tomb. Joseph had done. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. I guess this was going to be his burial place. I'll put Jesus in there. There's, there's room to be put in there. But you know what? Whenever he was buried, there wasn't anybody, to, anybody there whenever, whenever he died. Already gone, wasn't it? So you have a rock put up there. We know what that rock is about. But uh, the reason he put the rock there, he doesn't think people are going to come along, you know, and, and probably steal it. Although that could be. Uh, there were grave robbers, and they could steal the valuables, and people put that in there sometimes. But uh, another reason is prevent the animals, the birds coming in there. And so they put this huge rock and roll it down into place as it went into uh, position. And it would be as much as a thousand pounds to a ton. So he couldn't just do that by himself, but it was planned that he could roll right into place. Finish up the last verse here that we're going to do today. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So those two of them that were standing afar now follow these guys and they just kind of hang around. And uh, Nicodemus leaves and Joseph leaves. Um, 
And they're, standing, they're just in deep sorrow. They continue to grieve. It's just so hard to believe that this happened. They love Him so much. They're going to return the first day of the week. And they're going to be, one of them is going to be the very first witness to see the resurrection. The disciples were not the first to see. But these women are going to be. So we see that people come out in the open. God uses different situations and He uses it perfectly because His plan is always perfect. It will always come out the way that He wants it. And I think this burial is as important as the death. The burial and resurrection because it's all a part of the Gospel. You can't have it alone, but when it's put together, this is how God meant this to be. A lot of things went on there, didn't it? And so we'll move on um, with uh, that later. Let's uh, pray.